They may be seasonal, but they're carrying those, so you have to try those. I got. I brought those especially for you know who. Even though she doesn't deserve them. Well, she doesn't. Bob. She I, does not. I totally agree. She's such a. She's such a Scrooge. I totally agree with you. And there, I just gave him. She takes off bookmarks and look at that. She takes off. She takes off. But she can't eat them. Right. She can't eat bookmarks. Right. She takes off, leaving with to close the car, carrying the wine, you know, carrying a cup of coffee. That's why. No. My blood pressure before we came up here was up to one forty-three. Oh yeah. That's from the systolic, and what was the diastolic? Systolic is the important one. That's the one. Well, I understand. Well, the other one was normal. It was in the eighties. It was in the eighties. Okay. Please start. attention um, let's see a couple of things I think I've gone over this so there shouldn't be any questions but in case there are tonight's the last night for summer we stop until probably the middle of September um, I, some of you may not have been here the last couple okay, of weeks I, I can't keep track but um, looking ahead when we pick up again next year in the fall we're going to pick up again with Chaucer He's so good. He's so, he, to me, he's one of the most forgiving poets that's ever written. He, he just, he has a faith that we have lost in the modern world. If you, when you read the Canterbury Tales, you can't read them without coming across char characters that are some of the most despicable people in the world. What they do to each other is, and so human. I mean, they're just, but Chaucer finds a delight in them everywhere. So, um, to read him is to, recover something of a faith, I think, that the modern world has lost. That's good. We'll pick up with Chaucer and probably complete him. We'll just do a handful of um, stories. Did anybody not get the uh, Chaucer study guide? Because if you didn't, we've got study guides here. No, I didn't get them. The study guide's pretty thorough. I'm asking for a good donation on this because it's here's um, it's um, it's pretty thorough, and included in it are is um, our summaries of the stories that we'll most likely do. We'll probably do four or five, six stories. That's all. Then we're going to return to Shakespeare, and at this point, um, I'm I was only planning to do. Anthony and Cleopatra and um, Merchant of Venice. Those of you who have been doing this for a while, you know we've already done Merchant of Venice. We're going to return to it because, because everything that we've done since Dante is going to have more meaning when we do Shakespeare because Shakespeare's doing the commercial regime. 
Venice is the prototype of our world. And because we've had um, Boethius and Dante behind us, it should mean more now for the, even those of you who've read it to go back to it. Um, and it, we maybe do, we might do one more Shakespeare, but at least Anthony and Cleopatra, Merchant of Venice. For any of you who don't have either of those, we've got copies back there. Please buy them from us because we bought them. And if you don't buy them, we're stuck for the, for the cost. Um, so Anthony and Cleopatra are back, it's back there, and I think Merchant of Venice. So uh, there's copies there. They make good reading. So, so over the summer, over, over the summer, um, read Chaucer. You'll enjoy him. It'll be fun. And Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. Remember, Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra's Shakespeare's going back to Rome, ancient Rome, like he does in um, um, Midsummer's Dream. He's going back to ancient Greece. But to, to be aware of that is to realize how he's taking the past and carrying it forward, renewing it. So he's doing the same, a little bit of the same thing with Anthony and Cleopatra. Anthony and Cleopatra is different because it's a tragedy. Um, and I've, I've given some hints already. If you're going to read him this summer, read him, Anthony and Cleopatra, and do this. This, is, this play, Anthony and Cleopatra, takes place just before Christ comes into the world. I believe he's doing something with Anthony and Cleopatra that the pagans could never have seen because he had a faith that they didn't, and most modern scholars don't see, because most modern scholars don't believe in Christ. So, But when you read Anthony and Cleopatra, be aware that it's about two lovers. They're pagan lovers, and they're, they're star-crossed lovers. I mean, you, you, you can't read them without seeing a man and a woman who are deeply in love with each other and who come to a tragic end. I don't want to go into it, but, but keep that in mind, because lots of people will not see Christ. And I'm... You know the position I'm taking. I'm saying that he's always there whether we see him or not. Let's see if we can find him in that play. So that'll be good summer reading, okay? In the fall when we return. I think that's it. Did you give that card? Not yet. Except I want to take a minute um, just to bid a fond farewell to our friend, um, Gonna miss her. She's been here. And God, that kept, you've been here for the whole three years. Have you been here? Not the entire time, but yeah, three years. Yeah, you cannot leave. God. <laughs> I can't tell you how hard it is. You're God. gonna dial in every Monday night. I know. <laughs> we'll FaceTime with you. Yeah, FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'd like us. I'd like us. I'd like us all to carry Tracy in our hearts and wish her well in her new endeavor. Okay, just wish you well. Okay? I am going, we're moving to Wichita Falls. Go on. And I'm going to be director of the museum there. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, thank you all so well, much. Yeah, well, good. And just thank you for being kindred spirits. I can't tell you how difficult it is to find people who like the same things that I like. <laughs> so it's been really wonderful to feel. Well, Marcy will be up there just going to the casino and you'll see her. <laughs> <laughs> does, that, does that mean on, we're all odd? On Sundays, yes. And have it a companionship because we are? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Remember, um, Father Martinez is up there. 
Oh, is that right? Father Earl, yeah. Yes, yeah. and I taught him English. Okay, I'm going to let him know. Yeah. <laughs> we had a really good time, so he'll be good to you. Okay. <laughs> we just wish you well, Marcy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great. Any prayer requests? For tonight. I have one. My, I, the reason I wasn't here last week, my father-in-law is in the hospital. My husband's dad, and he, um, they're still doing all these tests, but there's something wrong with his pancreas. But they don't know what yet. They don't know What's his name? His name is Robbie. Robbie? Mm -hmm. Okay. Anybody Rod, else? Rod, <coughs> Rod, if you will. Rod Stiller. Okay. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for lots. Um, hard to believe. We've been at this for a year now. Sort of amazing. We didn't just do literature's prophecy. We went back and took two great poets, and poet and Catholic, and Protestant and Catholic, and did it with the hope of discovering something more about our faith. It's been a wonderful time. Um, Certainly for me, I hope for everybody. Um, for all that's going on to help us be strengthened in our faith, to understand it better, um, to be able to take it to the world, make a better defense of it, live it, we are grateful for all that these poets help us to see, maybe more especially to it, they help us to feel, um, to have better hearts, um, hopefully to bring more of you to the world. For the work that we've done together, I offer a great, great heartfelt thanks. Um, ask a blessing on Rod, still continue to be with him. Um, let this ordeal bring him closer to you, all ordeals should, it doesn't for too many people, sadly. Let Bob's heart be um, quiet about it, at peace, trusting. and. Um, <laughs> We're all in your hands. Um, it's not like we're left at the mercy of doctors. Whatever doctors do, um, we're principally in your hands more than anybody. So help us all not to forget that. For um, Tracy's father-in-law, is Robbie? Robbie. Robbie. For her husband and his father, um, um, let this, whatever difficulties there are, draw them closer to you. And very often, it's the painful things that do draw us closer because they remind us of how helpless we are um, when so often what we do is so vital. It's so easy to think we're so competent because we are. Um, death reminds us that mortality is around us all the time. Be with him. Help him to experience a peace, whatever struggles, if, um, help them to know you more closely, more immediately through his struggles. Let it be so for his son, too, for Tracy. Tonight, I um, want to offer a special blessing for her, um, be with her in this new endeavor, um, help her to remember that there's something online that she can turn to. Um, um, She's the director of a museum. Help her to remember that <laughs> I can't actually do this. That there's somebody there who will help her with her art in ways that her museum can't. Sorry, I had to get that in. Be with her. Help her to know a joy there. Be glad for her change and 
um, let it be a time of growing closer to you with her and, and her family, especially Madsen. Um, we offer all of these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Very quickly, um, can you tr pick up Hopkins? Let's finish. This is the last part of the wreck. Remember, um, the poem takes the form of a fugue. Um, you all have it regular good show? <coughs> The wreck of the Deutschland, that's what we've been looking at oh, the last okay. couple of weeks. You got it. Okay. Where did the end was? Hmm? I forgot where we ended. We were in the middle of the second part. We just have the last 10, 12, 15, 10. Okay, let's go on this. Remember that the, the historical context, um, Germany has passed the Falk Laws um, that entitled them to Catholic property so that um, they confiscated the um, Catholic church properties and exiled Catholics. These five nuns had to leave. They were forced into exile because of those laws, because of their religious beliefs. So the record of the Deutschland can have a twofold meaning. It's, it's, it's a description of what happens with that ship, the Deutschland, as it goes out. It can also indirectly refer to Germany because Deutschland means Deutschland, um, German land. So the wreck of the Deutschland can indirectly refer to the collapse of this state, this nation, and what it's doing. But the focus is this voyage that these five nuns were forced to take. They were sent into exile, they were headed to America because they were going, presumably because America would give them freedom to practice their faith. They headed out um, of um, northern Europe to the west and north to go around England and into the Atlantic to America. The storm came up and drove them south towards the Thames. So they're driven to that. It's interesting, Germany and England come together at this point, it's, yeah. it's just too much. Um, and they hit a shoal bank there in the, outside of the Thames and are stuck and the weather beats them down and, and I think almost half the people on board dying. That's the historic background, remember. Um, remember also that, that Hopkins himself had just become Catholic. The Tractarian movement um, was behind him. Um, England reached a point of crisis. I'll come to this again when I do the overview. It reached a point of crisis. The, ch the church, in the minds of many educated people, particularly identified with Oxford, believed that the church had become too lax, too liberal. We're looking at, in the 19th century, what's been going on here for 150 years in America. It's not any different, it's the same thing. Um, the Tractarian movement took place mostly men who were high Anglicans. But the church, remember after Elizabeth, there was this compromise between the Anglicans and the lower churches to avoid a conflict, and that's what was passed on. By the time of the 19th century, 1820s or so, 
the people who think seriously about things see the church in crisis. So they all begin to study and make these arguments, but as they're doing it, and they go back into history to look at the source of these problems, they realize that the problems aren't in the Anglican church, it's not a laxness, it's a deeper problem, a fundamental problem that took place in the break from Anglicanism to um, from Anglicanism in the Catholic Church. And many of them convert. Newman, John Henry Newman was the most famous. Hopkins himself converted. He was raised in an Anglican family and reached a point where he realized he, he could not return. And converted, and shortly after his conversion, he decides to become a Catholic. When he makes that decision, he knows he's going to become a Jesuit. And um, as I think I said last week, the Jesuits were um, terribly frowned upon um, because the English looked at the Jesuits as too aggressive in their approach to reconverting England. When they passed the Catholic Emancipation Bill, I think late in that century, early 20th century, I can't remember the dates on it, um, there was a, um, a clause um, continuing to outlaw, outlaw the, the Jesuits. Hopkins um, converted, became a Jesuit. His ordination had to take place secretly. He couldn't do that publicly. So it's during this time, about this time in his personal life, that he writes this poem. It's early in his life as a priest. Or, no, he's not yet a priest. He's slightly off from it. He's had retreats in which he's done the spiritual exercises. And if you've ever done the Ignatian exercises, you know that it can be pretty intense. Um, so he's had um, acutely um, painful spiritual moments. He's had to leave his family. He realizes the implications of what he's doing, he has to do it. He reached a point early in his career where he burned all of his poetry. He, he believed that it was going to interfere with his... This is one of the great poets of the 19th century. Lots, one of the greatest, certainly. Burned all of his poetry. When he writes this poem, it's still a period early in his life, in his conversion. And so the first part of it has to do with the personal struggles with God. Um, and he just read the news about the nuns going down, the, the, the wreck of the Vishwan. It overwhelmed him emotionally, and he, he imagined, as re, it in his own imagination, while he's struggling with questions about why, do, why does God allow these things? How could this be? So remember, in the first part, he, he presents this um, personal crisis that he looks at this God as the creator of everything, the master of everything, um, the, the, the spiritual crisis moment when he flees to the host. He's already experienced the host. He's converted and um, so it has a completely different meaning for him. Um, describes his personal experience and then the second part he takes up a narrative of what happened with the people on board the ship. We read the first part last time. Remember that um, the, 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 um, the storm comes on there's that one sailor who goes into the rigging to try to help. He attaches a rope to himself so he doesn't get swept overboard. But the wind takes him, and, and there's this picture of him getting whipped around on this rope. And Hopkins' description of him is that he was dandled. Which to me is just a, Because you know that a father dandles a child on his... This is God, the father, and the image of this guy whipped around is described in terms of dandling because he knows that no matter how painful these things are for us, there is this extraordinary God watching over everything. So these 
description is full of paradoxes of the wind blasting with, it's like a feather foam, but it's cobbled. It's hard, it looks soft and delicate and attractive, but it's fatal, steadily. So we got all of those paradoxical descriptions, and last time we read, we came to that point where the nuns come up and this one, this one nun arose like a lion. And she begins to assert herself to try to help out, and you hear her voice, even above the sailors. The sailors are all weathered men. They know this stuff. This is a nun. She's, this is not her life. This is not what she does. He describes her as towering forth this great courage that she shows to help. That's where we were last time, okay? Remember, this is not a narrative. It's a lyric. It's an ode. An ode is a, a poem of varied line lengths um, written for a public occasion. This is in celebration of God and these nuns <clears throat> who lost their life and, and his attempt to see the meaning of it. Now remember, I said last time, it's written in the nature, it's written in the form of a fugue, a musical fugue, just like Eliot, four quartets. The analogy here is music. The, the fugue introduces one voice, and then later on in its development, it introduces a second voice. And then at some point, those two voices come together with a resolution. That's the nature of a fugue. A voice, a second voice, another. Okay? Get that. Okay. So, um, the second part introduces the second voice. It's a narrative of this ship, and in the midst of this crisis, this, this nun appears speaking in another voice. Yeah, so hers is the voice that takes center stage in the second part of this poem. Okay? So let's pick up where we were. We were about at stanza 20. She was the first of a five and came of a coist sisterhood. Though Deutschland, double a desperate name, there's the irony. It refers to German land, this is Germany. It's also the Deutschland, the ship. Double a desperate name, oh, worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town. Christ Lily, that's Gertrude, she was a saint, and beast of the wild wood. Luther, because of his ferocity and his, the way he tore the church, um, are two of a town, Christ Lily and Beast of the Waste Wood. From life's dawn it is drawn down, Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have sucked the same. Both came from the same town. We saw this in Dante. Two children can come from the same family and turn out absolutely differently. It, 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 our life is filled with those kinds of tensions and conflicts and paradoxes. So let's finish it. Here's where we are. I'm just going to read it through with as few comments as, as it can make. Loathe for a love, men nude in them, banned by the land of their birth. Rhine refused them. Thames would ruin them. Mm -hmm. I mean, hear that. There's Germany and England because they come into the mouth of the Thames. Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them, surf, snow, river, and earth gnashed. But thou art above, thou orient of light, thy unchanceling, poising palms were weighing the worth. Thou martyr master, in thy sight storm flakes were scroll-leaved flowers. His will is being written on what happens. Lily showers, sweet heaven, was a strew in them. 
5, the finding and sake and cipher and suffering Christ. Mark, the mark is of man's make and the word of it sacrificed. But he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken before time taken. Deer's prized and priced stigma signal. Sanctfoid, the five marks of the stigmata. Token for lettering of the lamb's fleece, ridding of the rose flake. His writing, the stigmata, is everywhere in nature. Do we see it? The five nuns. Joy fall to thee, Father Francis, drawn to the life that died with the gnarls of the nails in the niche of the lance. His lovescape crucified all the wounds of Christ and seal of his seraph arrival. And these thy daughters and five lived and leaved favor and pride are sisterly sealed in wild waters to bathe in his fall gold mercies, to breathe in his all-fire glances. <laughs> I hope everybody's hearing the paradoxes. We want, every, in our life in America, we want everything to be comfortable. What he's describing in these paradoxes we're in the midst of these tormenting moments, excruciating pain. There is God somehow offering relief. As it was in the case of Christ, there, there was, there will never be, never anything as beautiful in our life as the crucifixion. God went to a cross, died, this grotesque, horrible death, and our faith is that in the midst of that, there was this beauty that God showed his love for us. We're supposed to take that to every um, crisis of our own. To bathe in his fall gold mercies, to breathe in his all-fire glances, away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead of Wales. I was under a roof here. I was at rest, and they the prey of the gales. Remember now, he's already had that stanza where he goes, Oh, you're feeling so sensitive, are you? He's scathing himself because as he thinks about this, he knows, he's recalling the torment. They were in this awful situation. He's at home, writing a poem. So he's scathing himself, sensitive, are you? Um, you feel so deeply about this. So he's taking himself apart at the same time. I was under a roof here. I was at rest. I, I mentioned that last time, right? There are times when something's going on in our life and we think, oh, how sensitive we are. We feel this deeply. As if we don't have any sense of how self-centered we are at that moment because that's not where our mind should be you know, um, any more than it was for Christ. I was under a roof here. I was at rest. And they the prey of the gales, she to the black about air, to the breaker, the thickly falling flakes to the throng that catches and quails was calling, O oh Christ, Christ come quickly. The cross to her, she calls Christ to her, christens her wild, worst, best. The majesty, what did she mean? Breath, arch and original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been? Breath, breathe, body of lovely death. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with a, we're perishing in the weather just the center of. Or is it that she cried for the crown then, the keener to come at the comfort for feeling the combating keen? Is there some peace working in her to call out for Christ? The men are going, we're perishing, we're dying. She's saying, come quickly, come Christ. Um, why, he's asking. What? Because the, the report was, 
She was reported to have said these words. That was part of the description of what happened. The keener to come into comfort for feeling the combating keen, for how to the heart's cheering the down-dugged, ground-hugged gray hovers off, the jay-blue heavens appearing of pied and peeled may, blue beating a hoary glow height or night still higher, with belled fire in the moth's soft milky way, what by your measure is a heaven of desire? What do you want? There's this vast universe of order. And she's in the midst of this ordeal. The treasure never eyesight got, nor was ever guessed what for the hearing. No, but it was not these. This is not what she was after. The jading and jar of the cart, time's tasking. It is fathers that asking for ease of the sodden with its sorrowing heart, nor danger Electrical whore, times tasking. All of us know those pains going through our daily tasks where they beat us down. You know, just we get it's like frost um, stopping by woods. I had miles to go and miles to go, but sometimes the daily tasks just wear us out. She wanting to escape from these, not danger, electric horror, then further it finds the appealing of the passion is tender and prayer apart. Um, is it the face of a danger? She's looking for escape, for help. Other I gather and measure her mind's burden in winds burly and beat of the endragon seas. But how shall I make me room there? Reach me it. Now this is, I think this is the crisis of the foe. He's asking, why did she call out, come Christ, come Christ? Was it to get relief from the burdens, the danger, the fear, the terror that most of us would want to get out of? What's going on with her? And the, the fact that he's reliving that with her brings the crisis to him. So here's where the two voices emerge. This is the crisis and the, the point of resolution that will make a difference in everything that follows. This is the coda, I mean the uh, fugue form at its pitch. But how shall I make me room there? Reach me a fancy come faster. Strike you the sight of it? Look at it loom there, the thing that she, there then, the master, Ipsy, the, oh God, the only one, Christ, King, had. He was to cure the extremity where he had cast her. Do deal, lord it with living and dead. Let him ride her pride in his triumph, dispatch and have done with his doom there. Uh, there was a heart right, there was a single eye, Read the unshapable shock night, and knew the who and the why, wording it how, but by him that present and past, heaven and earth are word of, worded by. This is the word, the logos there. The Simon Peter of a soul, to the blast tarpian fast, that a blown beacon of light. So in the midst of this, he's saying, it wasn't danger, it wasn't relief from time's tasking, it's ipsy, it's Christ. <coughs> There, then the master, Ipsy, the only one, Christ, king head, he was to cure. It seems to me in this moment, he's, he's answering this tendency in all of us think, if I only do this, I'll get a reward. Or if I'm only good, or, or if the danger's there, I'll, you know, Christ. It is in that moment, she's with Christ on the cross. It's, it's there. The good is in that moment. It's not something else. It's not something else. It's not yet to come. It is there. It's Ipsy, it's Christ himself in that moment.
thing that she then there, the master Ipsy, the only one, Christ came head. He was to cure the extremity. It was that meeting between her and Christ, and at that moment between Hopkins and her and Christ at the same time. It's at this moment where the personal story and this impersonal one of this nun come together. Jesu, heart's light, Jesu, made son. What was the feast following the night? That's glory of this nun. Feast of the one woman without stain, for so conceived, so to conceive thee is done. Here was heart throw, birth of a brain, word that heard and kept thee and uttered thee outright. That was her full meaning in that moment when she expressed those words. Though she has thee for the pain, for the patience, but pity of the rest of them. Heart, go and bleed in the bitter vein for the comfortless, unconfessed of them. As she was the one who met him, how many of the others on board that ship made peace with their lives, you know, met their maker in that moment? How many of them went by him? Comfortless, unconfessed to them, no, not com- uncomforted, lovely, felicitous providence, finger of a tender of, oh, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden, could obey so, be a bell to ring of it, and startle the poor sheep back. Either people will be distraught by this and turn from Christ, or they will be moved and helped to go to it. Is the shipwreck then a harvest? Does Tempest carry the grain for thee? I admire thee, master of the tides, of the your flood, of the year's fall, the recurve and the recovery of the gulf sides, the girth of it, the wharf of it, and the wall, this vast dangerous ocean. He's the master of it all, this nature that we're a part of. Staunching, quenching ocean of emotionless mind, ground of being and granite of it, past all grasp God, thrown it behind, death with the sovereignty that he heeds but hides, bodes but abides. With a mercy that outrides the all of water, an ark for the listener, for the lingerer with the love glides lower than death in the dark. A vein for the visiting of the past prayer, pent in prison, the last breath penitent spirits, the uttermost mark of our passion plunged giant risen, the Christ of the Father compassionate, fetched in the storm of his strides. Now burn, newborn to the world, double-natured name, the heaven-flung, heart-fleshed, maiden-furled, miracle in Mary aflame. Mid-numbered he in three of the thunder throne, not a doomsday dazzle in his coming, nor dark as he came, kind but royally reclaiming his own. A released shower that flashed to the shire, not a lightning of fire hard-hurled. Dame at our door, drowned in among our shoals. Remember us, it's a prayer. He ends this ode with a prayer. Remember us in the roads, the heaven, haven of the reward. Our king back, oh, upon English souls. That is, let England return to Christ. Um, Let him Easter in us be a day spring to the dimmest of us. Be a crimson cresseted east. More brightening her, rare dear Britain, as his reign rolls, pride, rose, prince, hero of us, high priest. Our heart's charity, hearth's fire, our thoughts, chivalries, throngs, Lord. Notice how 
that composite gathers all those things together to modify the Lord. Okay, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let you guys read it a couple times. There's just two, it's, it, it is, I think, the most, one of the most beautiful, most difficult poems in the English language, without a question. Um, but I hope you'll just reread it sometimes on your own and just go through it. There's a, there's a lot going on, and you're not going to get it on a first reading or second, but it will grow on you and it'll deepen. It's, a, it's an, just a, it's a wonderful description of a poet who's about ready to become a priest who's undergoing a personal crisis that so identifies with what happens that he, it helps him along in his own faith to, to see this God, to understand what God's doing. What? He only lived at 45 himself. And imagine he burnt his early poems to um, quickly take out Chaucer. I'm going to do this really quickly. The, we are done. I'm gonna take out the uh, beginning huh? of the prologue, the, the, the prologue yeah. thing. I've done this before, but let me do it again. I wanted you all to hear this because we're not... We, I'll, I'll, actually, I'll do this again when we meet in the phone just again. But I wanted you to hear this difference before we went on. I've done this before, probably a year and a half ago or so. I can't remember when we were doing lyrics. This is Chaucer's, the beginning of Chaucer's prologue to the Canterbury Tales. But the copy I've given you is in Middle English. Okay? And I, you've also got a copy of a, of a passage from the Knight's Tale, right? You've got both of them. Here's what it would sound like in Chaucer's Middle English. And remember, Chaucer's writing this around 1400, just a little bit before 1400. Shakespeare's writing his poetry six, roughly 1600. So not quite 200 years have passed. So Shakespeare's English will have a little bit of this, but Shakespeare's English is closer to our own. Okay? But I want you to hear this because we're going to be saying goodbye We'll pick it up again in the fall, and, and then we'll go to Shakespeare. But I want you to hear this while we still are with Chaucer fresh in my mind. <laughs> the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales, <clears throat> the prologue. When that afternoon, the the drop match has passed it to the rooter, and where every vein in sweet liquor, of which virtue engenders is the fruit. When Zephyrus eke with his sweet breath inspired half in every hold and heather, the tundra croppers and the young sonna, half in the ram his halva cool is here on her, and smaller fowl is making merry day, that sleep in all the neck with open yea. So pricket him nature in her courages, then long in folk to go on pilgrimages, and pomeres for to seek in stronger stronders. To fair and halwes kuthi in stronda londes, especially from every shearer's end of Engelanda to Canterbury they wander. The holy blissful matter for to seek her, that him help hoping, when they that they were seeker. They fell that in that season only day, in sort work at tablet easy lay, ready to wander on my pilgrimages, to Canterbury with full devote. It goes on and on and on. 
That's what it sounds like. Take a look at the, the I'll just read a couple of them. <laughs> 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 what, I'm sorry, what? I didn't get the first. Would you repeat that? Would you repeat that? What? what? <laughs> no, it was like a performance. I mean, yeah. Poetry is supposed to be like that. You know that. Sadly, it's not. But you know, here, take, take a look at the night's tale. Just quick. So this is just, it's the same thing, but it's just from the Esper, from the piece we read. Wandarasita to Stebes, Komen was, full of it the day he swelter in Sede, Alasa. For seeing his lady, shall he never more, and shortly to conclude in all his woe. So much a sorrow had he never a creature, that is, or shall, while that the world may do his sleep, his meter, his drink, in him bereft. At Lini he works, and Ria as it is shot. His iron holy and grisly to behold, his hue foulwe and paler as ashen colder, and solitary he was, and ever alone, and wailing all the night, whining, fussing all the night, and ever alone, and wailing all the night, making his morning. It goes on and on like that. But Chaucer's English would sound, I mean, I've had a practice and I don't, but it would sound a lot like that. Shakespeare is closer to Arlington, and you would hear some of that in his English. It's a different dialect. Shakespeare's in a different area, so the dialect would be slightly different um, and it would be closer to Arlington, but there would be something of that in it, okay? I just wanted you to hear that. Okay. That doesn't sound that Irish to me. I know. I'm like, like there was an Irish accent. There's, there's a lot of Scotch and Irish. There's and Welsh. A lot of Welsh, yeah. Ah, yeah. Welsh. There's a lot of yeah, a lot more, lot more Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can look at the words and watch. It just... My son is engaged to a woman from Welsh. Mm -hmm. So she was here Christmas. He's in good hands. Yeah. He's in good Tell them that for me, he's in good hands. Yeah, she was here Christmas, and I got to hear some of that. Okay. Do you know what you said? No. She had to tell me. She spoke well. She had to tell me. But she did it very well. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I want to. I want to just pick up Shakespeare very, very briefly. Um, sorry, Doc. Are those I hope they are. Okay, as long as you can yeah, see them. Oh, by the way, I meant to say this because I don't want to do this rushing when we go out. I, I knew there was something. God, it's getting worse and worse. Worse and worse for me. It really is. You're leaving at a good time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I just wanted to say um, again. Thank you for all of you. Um, it's been a pleasure doing this with you guys. Um, to see people doing this when you're not doing it for requirements or for a job or for you guys to be taking this time out of your lives to be doing this as regularly as you have says a lot about you guys. You've heard me say this before. I have so much respect for what you guys are doing. Um, you're so rare. Um, Anyway, I just appreciate it. I'm grateful for it. I'm glad. Um, it's wonderful to see. I hope I'm not mistaken here that I have the sense that 
these things are making a difference in your life, but I hope it's strengthening you in your faith. And in some ways, equally importantly, that it's strengthening what you do with your powers of reason, because you know from me, certainly, I've been explicit about it, we screw up reason so badly today, we use it in horrible ways. The wonderful thing about our faith is that reason and faith are supposed to come together in a good way. It should, if, if, if the center of our faith or our love is Christ, it should change the way we use our minds. We shouldn't use them the way everybody else is. So to have done this work with you guys has been a great pleasure for me. Um, so I'm glad for the time that we've had together. Okay? You guys have a good summer, and hopefully we'll all be back together in the fall to pick this up. Okay, Shakespeare. Um, how to do this? Too much going on here. You left off of the garden and the forest. Yeah. Let me just very briefly recall to you what the great themes of Midsummer Night's Dream were and, and, and try briefly to tie them in with um, Boethius and Chaucer. You remember in Boethius' Constellation of Philosophy that... Um, that the end of man, the, the natural end of man was happiness. That's our natural end. We were, we were created to be happy. That's our natural end. And through Boethius' arguments, we see that so long as we make our happiness depend on passing things, ephemeral things, wealth, position, office, career, title, money, pleasure. Um, St. Thomas names four of those. I can't honor, um, I can't remember pleasure. That, that the, the great dangers for us is that we, we look to those as if they're final ends when they're not. They're all perishable. They're all subject to fortune. And you know that's a huge theme in Boethius is that he, he's, he's crying because he suffered the misfortune of having given his life to this and then everything fell apart. He's in jail and about to die. So fortune is not a small thing. It's, a, it's one of the major concerns through the whole of the consolation. Lady Philosophy makes it clear that the problem is not what's outside of him. The problem is with himself, that he's, he lost his memory. Remember, he had anamnesis, this, um, this f- loss of recollection. So her duty is to try to help him recall himself, back to himself. Um, so knowledge is important. She wants to help him see that he's lost his own end. That if, his, if he was clear about that, he wouldn't be whining and fussing. The problem with him is he's been reading too much poetry. And she wants to straighten him out. So she makes it clear that putting his, his heart on those things is going to lead to nothing but frustration and ultimately an emptiness. So she makes it clear that, that it's, it's not until we realize our natural end and our beginnings that we will ever become who we are. And our natural end and beginnings, we began with God, we end with Him. He's the source of everything. He's the, he's, the, he's the good that's the source of all things. Um, it's at that point that she makes clear that all fortune is good fortune. That God doesn't let anything happen carelessly. He's not a bad God. He allows this. Um, I mean, she doesn't go into it for a lot of reasons. I, I, I think I've given you my own reasons that she ha- God has to be protective of our free will. So he allows evil, he allows us to do things. 
I think the other part of that, I so often hear, I, I think priests missed this, and I think it's a mistake. I think the other reason he allows it is because by seeing the consequences of our choices, we begin to take our will more seriously in the choices that we make. When, when we see how awful things can become, it should make us appreciate the free will that we do have and take care with our decisions. Okay? So it's to help us attain a gravity, a, some sense that there's more at stake than we often realize when we make the decisions we do. All of us know that. We look back on our life and think, just how stupid, how stupid, how stupid, or, you know, and I can't, I mean, it's going to, I hope all of us see it's going to continue until we, but, but it, if once we see that, we should be more careful and more ready to be faith, more trusting in God. So if we've made stupid decisions because we rely on ourselves too much, that should get cleared up some. <laughs> so we get a little bit older to trust in Him. It doesn't mean not making choices or being afraid. Christ says, be not afraid. But it does mean doing it in a different spirit. Are we okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. She doesn't quite go there, but, but the end of the last two books deal with this question of free will. Because uh, Boethius asks, if this is a good God, how can he allow bad things? And if he foresees things, how can man have free will? Everything's predetermined. It's predestined. The last book, as you know, I think is one of the most important in all of, our, in all of medieval history because she, Boethius takes on this question of predestination and free will. And I think what he does is extraordinary. He makes the distinction between those different kinds of knowledge, senses, imagination, re ratio, reasoning, step by step, intellect, understanding. Understanding means you see. Reasoning means you're, you're not there yet. You're trying to put it together. Understanding is that point in which you go, ah, now I see. You see a whole. She makes it clear that um, none of the lower ones can see the higher, but the higher ones can understand all the lower ones. Right? We've gone through all of this. And she makes the distinction between fate and providence and says that fate is that way of understanding things when we're in the midst of them. It's like the edge of a circle. We're just caught up in this, this sense of chaos and confusion. The center is the still point. That's the point at which you can see everything as it is. Providence is like that still point. The closer we are to that still point, the closer we are to God, the more we see the way he does, the greater the peace that comes to our lives. Okay? That's basically our argument. I think everybody's okay on that. Yeah, we've done this. Okay? Um, so she makes clear at that point um, that this whole question of predestination is badly misunderstood. There are lots of people say, God does it, or God did this, or... It, it's, it's a cutout. It's... Um, what, she, what she makes clear to him is that God doesn't foresee anything. There is no past and future for God. God only sees, but the fact that he sees something doesn't necessitate it. Any more than my seeing Valerie here, get up or sit down, determines that she's doing one or the other. Is it, is it necessary right now that she's sitting down to say it's a necessity that she's sitting? Yes, because she is. It's not otherwise, it is. If she gets up and walks, is it necessary that she walks? Yes, because she is. Does that mean the fact that I see it necessitates it? No. So what he's doing, what she's doing, what Boethius is doing with her, is showing that the fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate it. It doesn't take away our free will. But God works with our free will everywhere. One of the things he does is allow evil 
so that we can learn this great gift and, and ultimately that we can suffer with Christ. We can learn to love. So what, what we saw that, um, that how important Boethius was for Chaucer, because you can't read the Knight's Tale and not find every ten lines talks about fortune or you know, something. Um, justice and mercy are the great themes of that. They keep coming in. Right? I mean, we, they were the dominating themes. The, the knights owed their life to uh, Theseus because they were captives. They should have been killed. They weren't. They were taken prisoner. They should have been killed then. And it finally comes down to this um, quest or this, um, this um, what do you call it, this ordeal, jousting at the end. But the most important thing to take away from Chaucer's treatment of the Theseus story was he Christianizes it. He does something that the pagans couldn't. So in the Knights, it's the first tale of the Canterbury Tales. It's about Theseus, who's the legendary founder of Greece. So Chaucer's going back to our founding, but he's taking that story and recreating it. He's baptizing it, in a sense. He makes it clear that love is at the center, that the two men love Emily, and they want her, and um, Theseus is already defeated. Hippolyta, and they, they are happily united. Um, that nobody, nobody in that story can love until they put away their own wills. They will never learn to get beyond their passions, and you have destructive the passions are. The passions just keep hurting them. They get into fights. They're ready. These men loved each other. Saw a woman and then they hate each other. They're ready to kill each other. So until they put away their wills, they will never love. That is, they will never be capable of having a self-sacrificing love the way Christ did. So the, fun, the foundation, the f fundamental truth of the Knight's Tale is that love and order only come when people learn to give up their wills so that they're not just loving for themselves. Their own, to satisfy their own passion. The, the appetites, as Boethius would have put it, remember? Because he shows, if that's what you do, you're going to end up miserable. Because you know, if that's what you do, you're going to lose it. And So it's only when you accept a death, it's only when you finally give up those things that your passions will be overcome and you can love. So what we're watching is Chaucer taking an old pagan story about the founding of Western civilization and carrying it forward. So the principle of renewal for Chaucer is a self-sacrificing love. So he's taking a pagan story and introducing into it a principle of renewal. Okay? We are together. Is there any questions for anybody? Mark, you've got a question. I almost miss you. I'll, I missed you enough almost to say, go ahead and ask. <laughs> no, I, I, just, I, I find almost. it funny that you, you say something extremely profound and very deep, and everybody's sitting here going, hmm, and then you ask for any questions, like, we're not supposed to have any. <laughs> no, 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 that is not that, Wrong, beat, wrong again. I'm, God, Mark, I'm, little, does it, I'm asking because I want to know if anybody has a question. I'm only sorry in this work that we've done that we don't have more time for questions because in classes, the best time for me is taking questions because most of my learning goes on when I'm taking, because yep. I, I, I don't mean this to be arrogant at all. 
Very often when somebody says something that just really misses, it forces me to clarify my mind to answer it. And I've, across my life as a teacher, I've, that has been one of the most helpful things for clarifying my mind on everything. Answering questions. When, people's, when people are embarrassed to ask questions, it bothers me. You can't ask bad questions because even bad questions make you think. There should be no such thing as a bad question. I, I hate teachers who insult kids or embarrass them because they ask a stupid... There are no... Unless you're being arrogant yourself, and, you know? If you're really asking in earnest, you mean it because you don't know, there's nothing to come out of that but learning. You know, there's times when you will say things and questions do arise, but this little scenario you just went through, I mean, you sort of just capsulized it in such a way that it wasn't hard to understand. And it, and, it, and it does touch everybody. I mean, I know it touched me, you know, what you said, because it's very true. Yeah. That's why I love these stories. Yeah. So we went from Chaucer to Shakespeare, and Shakespeare, to get to him now, you know that Shakespeare's taking up the same theme that he's taking. He's going back to Greece. He went back to Rome in the Roman place. He went back to Greece in three of the plays. I've said this. Time of Athens, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Troilus and Cressida. Chaucer's other great poem, Troilus and Cressida. What's the Troilus and Cressida story? The Iliad. The Troilus and Cressida story goes... Those of you who've been here, we're going to feel this more. The Iliad, in my mind, is the one of the... It belongs to Genesis and Exodus. It's a founding work. It's about the founding of the West. It begins the epic tradition. And the, the theme of every epic? A refounding. A refounding. A refounding. Troilus and Cressida story, the source of it, what happens in the Iliad. Chaucer takes it up. It's his other great poem, Canterbury Tales, Troilus and Cressida. Shakespeare does three Greek plays. Um, Time of Athens, Troilus and Cressida, Midsummer Night's Dream. In Midsummer Night's Dream, he's going back to the Theseus story. What's the difference? Okay, now, hold on, because this is crucial. Here are some of the themes I went over last week. The idea of the soul from Plato in the Republic, that there's an, an order, there's a nature to man. Man has a nature. Man has a nature. I'm, I, I'm, I, hope I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not too badly repeating myself here. Those of you who've done this know, according to Plato, every soul has the faculty of reason, Every soul has what he called, the Greeks called, thymos and the appetites. These two are eros, their desire, except thymos is directed towards transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful. This is Boethius, the good that draws us all. Appetites are the same desire, the same faculty of desire directed towards bodily things, food, sex, drink. Okay? Um, Thumos was the middle part. Remember, I gave the image of the charioteer. There's a charioteer, and he's driving two horses. Yeah, black and white, right? Right. And the black horse is the dark appetites directed towards the body. The white horse is the appetites directed towards the good. It's the noble, the, the love of beauty, the love of truth, the love of goodness. Beauty is major. C.S. Lewis's 
uses this argument of abolition of man. It, it, it informs Lewis's whole way of thinking about the world. Reason controls the dark horse by means of this white one. He has to learn to pull them together, but it's the white horse that helps control the black horse. If reason were left with the black horse alone, the black horse would overwhelm him. Okay? I think I gave the example. Put a young couple in, in, in on a couch with their parents gone watching a romantic movie. And they know they're not supposed to have sex. The parents are gone. They know it in their head. Is the fact that they know it enough to keep them from having sex? In my case, yes. <laughs> You're a better person than I am. Okay, no. so my Most adolescents, I'm assuming you know, are not going to have it. And particularly in our age, because the whole point, Lewis makes this and Plato makes it, it's the middle element that makes us human. It's the lower male element that makes us beast, the animal. It's the rational that makes us angelic. And both of those extremes are not good because they're not our nature. It's the middle element that makes us human. Thumos is spiritedness. Spirited. Anger. It's not wrath. Wrath's a sin. Anger. When somebody violates your home, you tell them to get out. Somebody's beating somebody up in the street, hopefully you go up and say, stop it, knock it off. Stop that. When somebody's not doing something good, you need enough anger to say, stop it. I mean it. Stop. Without it, we become overwhelmed. The lower faculty is like the appetites. It's like, it's legion. It's like a hydra. It's vast. Where would you put faith? Sorry? Where wait on that, David. Okay. Can you? Yes, wait. Sure. Wait. So, so, wait. Sorry, go ahead, Mary. Go ahead. So, the... So the white horse has to lead because if they, you let the black horse lead, it's gonna. Take they don't lead; they balance. go together. Yeah. They, they balance. Do they have to lead, or can you just focus on the white horse? Do they have to balance? Yeah, they have to because they're part of our nature. Let me let me try to answer that another way, and let me go on because I hope this will be clear. Isn't that what our saints would? Hold on. Wait. Give me a little bit to get okay. this thing laid out. Plato was really clear in this for this reason, and all of us know this. He's not hypothesizing something. He's not. This is factual. And, and just hold, give me a little. Give me a few minutes if you've got. Hold on to them for a minute. His example was: you go, you go, you're on the desert, dying from thirst. You see a pond. You go up to the pond. You know that if you don't drink, you're going to die. Yeah, you're that thirsty. You approach it. You think. I'm alive again, I'm going to And then you come on the hole and it says, poison. What's your response in that moment? I'm trusting everybody knows part of you is going to want to drink, and part of you is going to say no. How can, how can that happen unless there are two faculties and a rational faculty making the distinction? So, and Plato goes through this more in more elaborate, but that's the simple way. In, all the ancients knew that the human soul had those faculties. We have a rational faculty. We all know that. We have an appetitive faculty. We all want. We desire. Eros is basic to us. There's something in us that's not angelic. The, the, the part of us that wants to be angelic is actually destructive of our nature because we're not angelic. We have bodies. By the way, that's where we went down. This is where my wrap-up is going to go. We are extraordinary as human creatures. God made us we are the most extraordinary thing in creation. And we've got a body. The angelic people want us, the Gnostics, want to do away with the body. Um, anyway, Plato's saying, 
you can't be ju- this was his own, you can't be just one of the natural virtues unless you order your own soul, which means mind your own business. You have to work at bringing this order to your own soul. And it's only when you do that that you can bring justice to another. Because until you do that, you're going to bring some disorder. I hope all that's obvious. Okay? That's the order of the soul. Plato also knew that the, the, his argument in the, in the Republic, which is, this is why it's such an important work, when a regime comes into existence and it imposes a regimen that's out of tune with the nature of the soul, what's going to happen to that regime and the people in it? It's destructive. It's inherently going to be bad. A totalitarian regime by nature violates our nature. Free will, the ordering of our souls. So part of the point of the Republic is we've got to know the nature of the soul. We will never get straight on politics if we don't get straight on that. And there are these three faculties. Now, what does Shakespeare show us in Midsummer Night's Dream? So, in Midsummer Night's Dream, we've got three orders of the soul. We've got the rulers, which are whom? Theseus and Apollyta. You've got the nobles, the spirited ones, who are always angry with their passions. Who's that? The lovers. Lysander, Hermia, Demetrius, Helena. They're noble spirited. So, well, compare the lovers to the craftsmen. The craftsmen willing to fight. I mean, we see the craftsmen fighting with each other out of passion because their loves are so strong. What motivates the craftsmen? Money. Really? Why do they want to put on this play? For remuneration. When Bottom comes back at the end, the, the whole response of, thank God, does Bottom know how much he would have missed out? He would have, missed, he would have lost six pence, seven pence. The, the play wouldn't have gone, and they would have been out of all this money. What motivates the, the middle part is Thumas, the love of something higher. Nobility, beauty. What drives the lovers? Beauty. Every ten lines, the word I is mentioned. If I had her eyes, if he would only look through my eyes, or I see my eyes. Where does the potion go? On the eyes. Because, because what comes through the eyes? Beauty. What awakens desire? Beauty. Beautiful home, beautiful car. And I can't believe anybody's not aware that you cannot watch an advertisement on TV, never have been able, without a beautiful woman next to it. Hmm. Oh, that's an accident? <laughs> The, the thing that, I mean, I've said this since the Odyssey, those of you who done the Odyssey, the most powerful thing for a man is the beauty of a woman. Look at Odysseus, Calypso's Island for eight years, one year, it's two. Homer's right on. It's not until a man learns to get control of that that he will get home. That's part of Odysseus's journey. So long as those desires overwhelm him, he will never be who he was given to be. That's the great struggle for every man in a marriage. I'm trusting we all know it. <laughs> And, and the counterpart of that is true for the women. So it, don't, don't any of you women act like you're off on this because you're not. Uh, it's a struggle for all of us. Okay, do you see where we're going here? Um, let me put it this way. At the end of the play, are the three class, the social classes, ordered? Are they in harmony? Yes, they are. 
Now let me go back. These are some of the major themes of Midsummer Night's Dream. The proper ordering of the soul, the bringing of... This is out of Chaucer. Chaucer was doing the same thing. The bringing of law and love together, justice and mercy. What, now here's the difference. This is where it gets really interesting and complicated. Chaucer lived at a time when England was united. All of the pilgrims in Chaucer's story share the same faith. There's no disunity there. They're all going to Thomas's shrine. They're unified in their faith. It's looking back to a feudal world. The task that Chaucer's facing is much simpler than Shakespeare's. He's still dealing with the same thing. How do you order the passions? How do you bring lovers together? Okay, here's the difference. Shakespeare is writing in a time when the feudal world is dismantled, it's falling apart. All the modern states are emerging, and moreover, the Reformation has taken place. So England has separated itself from Rome. The, the faith has been crippled badly, and nations are at war. And all of them are claiming autonomous power. It's the, it's the emergence of the modern absolutist state, where the state has complete power. So the problem that Shakespeare's facing is much greater than Chaucer's. He can't take that stuff for granted. So one of the things that Shakespeare has to do is not only deal with the lovers and law and love, he has to order the state. Because with a, without a well-ordered state, the soul, all these personal problems of love and law, won't get reconciled, won't be resolved. And let me try to make that clear this way. How does the play begin? Theseus just overcome Hippolyta, as with Chaucer. The Amazon, remember the Amazons are a group of women who make their identity with themselves greater than men, so it's very exclusive. Thebes is the noble city, it's the dynastic that, that makes aristocracy more important. It's anti-democratic. The, the Amazons and the Thebians are anti-democratic. They make something else more important than the whole of man. Theseus has answered both of those. In Chaucer, remember, he conquered the Thebes, he conquered Hippolyta. So the sexual tensions are overcome with him and Hippolyta, and the Thebes has been answered. He takes um, Arceta and Palamon to Athens. So Thebes has been taken to Athens. It's, it's answering that, that disorder. In Shakespeare, we've got a different problem. The, the state is far more important now because of modern conditions. How does the play open? Theseus has conquered Apollota. Aegeus comes and says, I want my daughter to marry Demetrius. Uh, or I mean, yeah, because he favors Demetrius. Hermia loves Lysander. Theseus has to uphold the father's authority, so the authority of the family. He tells Hermia, you owe your obedience to your father, do his will. And she says she loves Lysander. He says, marry or, or suffer death or you go to a nunnery. So the opening problem of Midsummer Night's Dream is this conflict between law and love. Right? So the opening <coughs> problem shows laws above love and could possibly be the means of destroying it because if she doesn't marry Demetrius, she dies. That shows how serious this is. So there's this opening tension. There's no place in the city for love. At Merchant of Venice, those of you who've done Merchant of Venice, any different? 
The modern preoccupation with money, reconcile that with love. That's the great theme of Merchant of Venice. That's what we did together. So the lovers run off to the forest, and everything that happens there because of what Oberon does helps bring the lovers together. They're at the edge of the forest. Theseus goes for a hunting with Hippolyta at the end, and he sees them. Aegeus says, I want my will, the law. And Theseus says, I do overbear your will, and the lovers go into the city. Now, two things to keep important. What is it that brings the lovers, that makes a place for the lovers in the city? Number one, okay? The other thing that we learn late in the play that people overlook because it seems stupid is that the play that the mechanics are putting on is the play of Pyramus and Thisbe. They're lovers under a Babylonian regime. Ninus was the, le here it is, Ninus was the legendary founder of Nineveh. Nineveh, Ninus. So you've got Theseus as a founder, Ninus as a founder. What happens in the East in the relationship between law and love? What happens to the lovers in play? They both die. So in the East, law and love do not come together. They're not reconciled. There's no place for love as we know it in the West. In the West we do. So Shakespeare's doing what Chaucer did. He's dealing with this relationship between law and love, but in our play, in Midsummer Extremes, with the help of Oberon, the lovers get back to the city. When they come back to the city, love and law are reconciled, number one, and two, um, there's, there's a place for love in the, in, the, uh, in the city now, and the city is renewed, and all of the classes are in harmony. The rulers, the nobles, the mechanics. So the, what Shakespeare shows us at the end of Midsummer's Dream is this, this delight, this joy and delight that we take because we see that law and love can be reconciled in a human soul. It can be reconciled between lovers, between a man and a woman, and it can also reconcile parts of the state. So what he gives us at the end of Midsummer's Dream is far more it's far richer, far more complicated than what Chaucer does. That's what makes Shakespeare such an extraordinary. And let me just, to, to underscore this, I want to read two things. Um, and then I'm going to ask for your questions again. And I don't, um, I can't find it, but I'll here, turn to... There's two quick things I want to look at here. This is actually scene one, about line 125 or so. Remember that Theseus has put that love potion on Titania's eyes. And when she wakes up, she sees bottom. And she's enamored of an ass. There's something to... What Shakespeare's showing us is that... She, She's, she's too dotish. I mean, she, she, she wants to have that boy too much when she should give that boy to Theseus. There's time for a young man to be raised for a woman, and there's a time for that boy to be turned over to the man, and because his biological end is with a man, so. But she wakes up, and this is what happens when she wakes up and sees bottom. About 125 or so. 
I pray thee, gentle mortals, sing. Remember, Bottom's going on. He, by the way, he's got an ass's head. Why? Because in so many ways, Bottom himself is an ass. It just, it, it's just what he is. Through the, I mean, it's comic. Shakespeare's, there's nothing disparaging. He's just being comical. Bottom's going on, and she wakes up, and she hears him talking, and this is her first response. I pray thee, gentle mortals, sing again. Mine eye is much enamored of thy note. So is mine eye enthralled to thy shape. So, eye and ear, now hold on to that. Eye and ear are overcome by the beauty of bottom. Um, on, the, um, on the first, and thy fair virtue's force, perforce doth move me. On the first view to say, to swear, I love thee. Bottom, but thanks, mister, she should have a little reason. Watch it. You should have a little reason for that to love him. Watch what he's doing with love and reason here. Um, you should have little reason for them yet to say the truth. Reason and love keep little company together nowadays. That's from bottom. Reason, when you look at this play, is there anybody in the play who brings, through 90% of it, is there anybody in the play who brings reason and love together? No. They're in conflict. They're at odds. Um, turn to the very end when the, when the play is about done. The, the nobles are watching the play. This is Act 5, Scene 1, about line 204. They've been very um, magnanimous. Theseus is very magnanimous. He said, let the, let, the, let the mechanics put on the play. Hippolytus is a little bit concerned about it. I'll read the passage in a minute. What act are you in? Act 5, right. Scene 1, line around 200, 205. The play has just been performed, and Theseus is now this is muralled down between the two neighbors. They're talking about the wall. No remedy, my lord, when walls are so willful to hear without warning. This is the silliest stuff that ever I heard. The best in this kind are but shadows, and the worst are no nurse, if imagination amend them. She says, this is the silliest stuff I've ever heard. Now, when most people come out of the play, they'll go, what a delightful silly. This is, a, this is, well, this is the silliest. And yet I'm saying, if you take a look at what Shakespeare's doing, this is really profound. Now here's the question that I left you with last week at the end, and I'd like to take a minute with it now. In the East, the lovers don't get back. In fact, let me put this differently. You know that Christ, Shakespeare's writing at the end of 1600 years of Christianity. So love is the most important virtue in the West after he came. I've said this before and before. The ancient world, Jewish, pagan, the highest ideal was justice. To do justice for another, whether it's Old Testament or the, the Iliad. Or. When Christ comes in the world, there's something greater than justice or the law. It's love. And we know from Christ that love isn't separate from the law. It's meant to fulfill it. This is the whole theme of the Divine Comedy. We have spent months on this. To separate justice and love is to create problems. Too harsh, too enabling. It's harder to bring the two together. That's what Christ did, and that's what we're asked to do. The West was Christian Europe. East was not, wasn't received. I mean, going to the East, and it's not as Christianized. China, for the greater part of the East. In the story, Pyramus and Thisbe, the lovers don't get back. That's not a small thing. In the West, at the end of the story, the lovers do get back. And not only do they get back and love and law are reconciled, 
But the city, all of its parts, the lords, the nobles, the mechanics, are in harmony. So we're seeing love and reason reconciled, and we're seeing a harmonious state. Does everybody follow me just for a minute? I mean, does everybody see that's what's going on here? The three, the three classes of the city are in harmony, and there's a love, there's a harmony in between lovers that didn't. So, we've got this wonderful accord, this harmony at the end. So, my question is, none of this would happen, none of it. The lovers would not get back to the city if it weren't for what happens in the forest. It wouldn't happen except for what Oberon does with the love potion. Putting it on Lysander's eyes, taking it off, you know, it was by mistake, putting it on Demetrius's eyes, putting it on Titania's eyes, um, healing, all that Oberon does makes it possible. And here's, here's this is what's crucial. He, he, what Oberon does makes it possible for the lovers to come together. Towards the end of the play, when Theseus and Apollo are coming for their hunting, Aegeus is with them, and when they come across the lover, Aegeus says, I want the law. Theseus says, I do overbear your will. Lots of people say he's just contra- he's being inconsistent. I don't think he is. He overbills him or over- overbears him because the lovers are in accord. Mm-hmm. Before there was there was no accord between the law and lovers. Yeah. Now the lovers are aligned. If he were to screw that up, if he were to force Demetrius to marry um, Hermia and Lysander to marry Helena, there would be nothing but discord in the city. The lovers are where they should be. And Theseus, knowing that, says, enough. So, But here's the important point. Theseus has to ratify that before the lovers can come back. It requires a political sanction. When that happens, they're back in the city, and we have the play at the end. I hope everybody's seen, because I think that's a fairly accurate description. My question is, who is Oberon? What did he do to make this possible? It, it won't be fulfilled without Theseus saying, I do overbore your will, and love and law are reconciled. Is everybody following? <laughs> Wait, before we get, is everybody following the, the plot, the action? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then my question is, who is Oberon? Um... What, how we, do, because Shakespeare's, Shakespeare, to me, he's, he's probably the most profound thinker that's ever set foot on this earth. What he does with, if you read all of his plays and you watch what he does, and you read you, any contemporary philosopher, it does not matter, the philosopher will, will not get close to what he does in his understanding of our human nature. So this is not just some playful thing. He's taking Plato seriously, he's taking Aristotle seriously, he's taking Boethius, he's taking Chaucer seriously, but he's dealing with a far more complicated world. But before we can understand this, we've got to ask, who is Oberon? What is he doing to make all this possible so that Theseus can ratify it? Who is Oberon? What is that love potion? And I'm not asking that because well, we, we touched on that last time because I thought about the purple and the white and thought those might be Christ's blood or something referenced. St- state of the play. Make a... I, I don't know. <coughs> I'm 
just thinking. There may be illusions there, but still we have to ask, what is he doing? What's Oberon doing? Who is he? Remember, that, wait, two things. This happens in the forest. It's a world of shadows. It's not, it's not the world of law. The world of law is clear. Here's the law. The lovers in the east, don't get, don't get by. Here, there's clarity. We're in a world of reason. We're, we're in Theseus's world. It's a world of reason. What happens in the forest is under the moonlight, what's the moon typically? Madness, insanity. It's a world of shadows. The word, the word is continuously used, the world of shadows, and it's moonlight. By the way, everything that happens to the lovers happens while they're asleep, dreaming. Bottom says at the end, I have, ha- I have this, is, this is bottom, I have not heard, ear hath not seen what, you know, what I experienced. Every one of the lovers has a dream, and some action takes place about which we're in the dark. We don't know. It's a mystery. Well, who is Oberon? What's he doing? Well, did we touch on this last time we say when God speaks to, they usually was dreams. So is that God's speaking to them in the dream? But put, put Oberon in that. No, put Oberon in that. I mean, I, I agree with that, but put it put it in the play. And Carl, you, what's going on? It's, it's like the subconscious. You know, maybe it's there, but you don't know it's there, so you dream about it. It's it's you solving the problem, figuring it out. Yeah, it, yeah, it's true. But everything Oberon does is very deliberate. He knows what he's doing. He gets angry at Puck when he thinks Puck is fooling around and tells him go, you know. So he's he's a ruler. He's, he's saying, a force. Huh? He's a the force. force. <laughs> Tracy, we got to hear from you before you leave. Just from what you've, because this is a world, what happens in the forest is a world of art. Mm. It's the world of the imagination. Everybody, I hope, it's a world of the imagination. Shadows and the imagination and the love potion. And Inspiration. I'm going to get, this is, I mean, it's perplexed critics and readers forever. I think, I think Oberon's the, an image of the poet working with the emotions and the passions outside the world of reason to help make reason possible. Because, yeah, just hold on, you, it's working through beauty, through images, art, art is, remember every, he, what's the love potion? It's Cupid, shooting, it's Cupid shooting love at a flower, at an, at an actual thing in nature that, that increases the eros, the desire that's awakened with somebody who looks at it. So it's principally dealing with images, what comes to the eyes, and the power of those things to awaken love, eros, powerfully. So what Oberon does is help order the emotions. This is, it's the, you can call it the subconscious or the subterranean or that underworld that we have to work with to become rational. We don't learn to order emotion. Put it this way, if you grew up reading Shakespeare, Let's say, let's say you grew up in a family reading Shakespeare and became a part of you and loved him. And you grew up in your family with, a, say, a mother and a father lecturing at you all the time, saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. You can't do that because you're going to be bad. If you do this, you know. Would the emotions be <coughs> equally formed in both of those cases? 
It wouldn't. I mean, you'd be in a world of ideas, moral abstractions in the one family, but you'd be learning to feel things in the other. I mean, if you, you know that if you go to a movie or read a book or you, your emotions are, you read a good book and you come out and you feel your, like your heart has experienced something, that you love it, your emotions are aroused. It's a little bit different from having your mother say, stop it, you're being bad, you know, again and again and again and again. The poet is the one, I've said this all along, the, like with music, you know, the music composers, they're the ones who help us to feel, to order our feeling, the, the effective part of the soul. But in Shakespeare's case, remember that the, the challenge that Plato put to the poet, that Shakespeare's so aware of, particularly in this play, Plato was upset with Homer because he showed the gods changing. And he said, God can't change. God's good. There's nothing else but good. He can't be anything less than himself or more than him. He's, so Plato's, I think philosophically, he's absolutely sound. There is this goodness. Boethius, that's at the center of Boethius's argument. That's Plato. There is this goodness. It's complete in itself. There was nothing before then that is unbegotten, uncreated. It is being. It is. And there can't be anything other than that, or it would make him less than perfect. And so there's this great goodness, and the poet is not a good poet unless he can help bring the soul to see what's universal, unchanging, always. The poet who's trapped in his senses, oh, I love the beautiful, it's musical, you know, it's, the, the poet who's trapped in his senses, and that was his accusation, part of his accusation is, that it keeps the person in the cave. Remember the, that all of us are in the cave, trapped by what? Shadows. Here's the fire, here's the people with the books, and here, here are all of us. We take all of these shadows, these images, as reality. One person breaks free, he sees the light, the eternal form. He said, only the poet who can show us that and take it back in to help other people see it will be a good poet. Shakespeare would have taken that critique really seriously. Does Shakespeare do that here? I would argue yes. He's showing us the love that's possible between a man and a woman, the order that's possible in the human soul, how we have to order it, and he's going beyond them by showing a well-ordered city. And if that's not clear, let me put it this way. If you took those lovers and put them in a tribe, would they come to themselves? If you put all those four lovers in a, in a socialistic or communistic city, would the end come out the same? Would, would either the, a tribe or socialism, let's say, just to would either of those regimes be able to accomplish bringing these different classes of people together? Hmm, absolutely not. Every one of those regimes would be out of tune, not only with the human soul, but the different classes of people. Are all people the same? No. Some people are better at ruling. A great majority of people are noble. Their passions are... We, we get angry when things don't go well. There are some people who are fine just to work and get money. The laborers, the mechanics. We take our car to this one guy. I thank God for... I'm not kidding. I just think it's a, it's a losing art to find people who love art today. We take our car to the same people all the time when we need because I so trust that man. I so like him. I so admire what he does. How many people 
can do a craft because they love it. Are all people the same? Absolutely not. Put us in a socialistic system or a tribe, what's going to happen? Because those things are, are in accord with our nature? No. So my question is, what is Shakespeare doing? How, do, how, do, how does all this happen? Because of what Oberon does. And I think Oberon is the... Here, here put it differently. In the West... Here, this will... This should nail it. If you look at Christianity and you read Plato and Aristotle, you find that so much of what Plato and Aristotle think is already preparing for Christ. It's just amazing to see what they do. First mover, the good. Plato said the good, you know. This is all before Christ came in. If you look at Christ and, and, and set him against Plato and Aristotle, it's amazing to see how, compatible, how, how much they almost prepare for him. If you look at modern philosophic systems after Descartes, <coughs> Kant, Kant, Hegel, all of them, they're insistent Freud. They're insistence in their head. If you, go to, if you take a, a, a course on Shakespeare today from somebody who's Freudian, they're going to take this guy who knows more about our human nature than anybody I've ever known, they're going to take Shakespeare and they're going to look at him through the eyes of a system, Freud, and all they're going to find are sexual perversities. That's the lens through which they'll see him. So what we have in the West is a, a philosophy and a poetic tradition that's compatible with our God. The Islam in the Middle Ages, they had to come up with what they called two truths. Read the Islamic philosophers. It, it made them exiles in their land because they could not, they could not reconcile philosophy with their belief in um, Allah. So they came up with two truths. Otherwise, they couldn't do it. It, it was a scandal. It, it made the religious leaders want to get rid of the philosophers. Again, is there in the East a poetic philosophic, philosophic tradition compatible with our religious beliefs? No. What you've got is the law. And that law happens to be antagonistic towards philosophy, poetry, Remember, remember, remember Plato's critique. Unless a poet can see the eternal truths and make them concrete in this world, he will not have a place in our city. What does Shakespeare do? He reconciles all these. What's going on in the East with Piers Fizzy? Dead. In the West, this, it's a Western flower. This, you know, the, the shot in this Western flower. Religion, philosophy, and poetry can, can achieve this amazing accord that has not been recognized, achieved in China, India, Asia, Africa. How well do love in law or love in philosophy or poetry get along in any of those countries? Are you all following? Yes. So Shakespeare's aware. So I think what goes on in the forest is you've got the work of the imagination at the, at the subterranean level, as you can call it the unconscious, where the poet is working with love, what he does with it, and notice how he, he uses it differently in different cases, because he's going to be dealing with different problems with different people. But he brings it right. He brings it to an order at the end. I always thought it was the Holy Spirit, not the poet. What's it? Oh, it is the one. The whole... 
forest type of thing? The problem, the problem with that, I mean, the, here's the problem. If you read, if you read, if you take, let's say you're doing a course with Shakespeare, who's an, an agnostic, an unbeliever, and you say, I think it's the Holy Spirit, he'd laugh at you. Well, wait, 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 just listen, wait, wait. He'd say, show me, give me evidence. You can look at Midsummer Night's Dream, you, in, in one sense you can look at Midsummer Night's Dream and you're not going to be able to find Christ in it anywhere, or the Holy Spirit. You can't find it. Um, if you're going to get to something beyond the play, you've got to go through the play. The, what I'm tr trying to offer you is everything that the play supports, that there's all this stuff in play, in the play will... It's hard to find Christ in it. It's hard to find the Holy Spirit. It's hard to find God. Um, there are suggestions when Bottom says, I have not heard, you know. There's, uh, but it comes from the f most foolish person uh, in the group. So I, I think you can make arguments that God and, and Christ, and, and you can maybe even, but not in any explicit way. You, you, you have to allow the play on its own terms. What you can say is, Shakespeare is really clear that what goes on in the forest, this world of the imagination, makes possible things with the emotions and the mind that the city by itself can't do. And that that doesn't go on in the East. The play makes that clear. Um, it's an early play in his life. Other plays will go deeper, but at this point in his stage, to me it's amazing to, to see that on the, at the beginning of modernity, he understands that there's this conflict between reason and the imagination, between reason and love, and that unless we can reconcile them, it's, it's going to make it possible for lovers to come together, and it will make it impossible for love and law to come together in the city. But the city will always get torn apart. I, I, I mean, let me put this even more. I don't think the violence that's going on in our country today is an accident. This is me. Politicking for a minute. I think it's a sign that politics, as they've been practiced for the last, say, 75 years in our country, are out of tune with our nature. And all it's doing is making things worse. And all the, all the indications are it will get worse and worse because we, like Boethius in the Consolation, we have lost a sense of who we are, what our beginnings are, what our ends are, and most importantly, what our nature is. If you, if you listen to modern politicians today, they have no understanding of human nature. They've got an ideology. They want to make, they want to make our world a heaven. And in and, and every attempt they do to, to make this, to do away with to do away with dogmas, get Catholics, Christians out of the way, because they're dogmatic. They, they'll cause a problem. They want a utopian world. They want to make a heaven and earth. And as long as they keep doing that, they're just going to make things more violent, and they will never see that they're doing it. Shakespeare's dealing with all, the point that I'm trying to make it, Shakespeare's on the edge of modernity. He sees what's coming, and all of his plays are, in some sense, revelations of who we are on the verge of modernity. This is a Greek play, but he's taking Theseus, and he's, he's taking a founder and showing the condition. So in Chaucer it was, deny your will. You had to learn to give up your will. Here... It's, it's learning to bring reason and love together um, and, and the classes of the city.
there's a larger problem. You can't just isolate couples. They live in a larger context, so it's really important for him to see the nature of the city. What he does in this play is show all of those orders coming together, all the classes of the city. And the, the, the point to underline here is the, the, the crucial role of the imagination in helping to bring that about. Well, he also lived in conflicted times because he had to... Terribly. To get his plays on, he had to go through their censorship of the time. And, and conceal things, yes. And then right. there was the political thing. They had to make sure they bowed to the queen, even though he conflicted in that right. way. And he right. had to, there's like double entendres. Right. Oh, no. no, it's true. So many of his plays indirectly touch on contemporary issues, but they're very indirect. Because if he, if he were direct, he would have been in the, You know, I mean, there's just not a point. He would have been executed. You would have put in the tree. I mean, People were executed all the time for speaking out against the crown, particularly about religious matters. I'm so glad. Go, Jeannie. What, what percentage, I mean, no, you don't know exactly, but you guesstimate, what percentage of Shakespeare's audience would have understood all of this mm. from listening to his plays, watching his plays? Here's the... That's such a good wait. Here's let me. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm not ducking this either. Um, let me go at this this way. I, I don't know how conscious you are, but you certainly should be somewhat conscious about it from our work. After Descartes in the West, and Descartes is the sort of father of modern philosophy. We we live in idealistic, an idealistic. Tradition. It's very subjective, relativistic. For Descartes, we don't, we don't know things, we know ideas in our heads. Which makes philosophy relative. If you know the ideas, what one person, the ideas in one person's head can be, you know. Um, but we live, in, we live in our heads, and for him, the, 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 one of the qualities of knowledge was clear and distinct ideas. In a scientific world, we live in a scientific world, we want, we want mathematically precise data. And we think anything other than that isn't knowledge. It's <coughs> something else. It's a habit of the modern mind. We think without clear, distinct ideas, we don't have it. We depend on it. Shakespeare would have known better. That, that, um, very often we know things without being able to articulate them. Very often we read poets and we feel something we felt before without even knowing it. Or we'll, we'll hear a poet say something and we'll say, I felt that but it could have never they help us see and feel things. T.S. Eliot once said, to, to support this, we have a kind of feeling about things before we know them. I think I've talked about this before in Shakespeare's um, Julius Caesar. Portia, Brutus's wife, suspects something's wrong. He's, he's plotting to kill Caesar. She knows something's wrong in her heart. Can she articulate it with an idea in her head? Absolutely not. Very often, women know when something's going on with their husbands, even if they've not talked to them. Very often, husbands will have some sense something's going on with their wives. Can we put that in the form of a clear and distinct idea? Absolutely not. There are things that we know through our... This is St. Thomas. Knowledge by connaturality, by affection. But very often, we feel things... Very often, we know things through an affection, a, a feeling with another... So, when people came out of Shakespeare's the theater, or we do in any, 
I think very often we're made to feel things or see things through our emotions that we couldn't put into words. One of the values of literary criticism for me as a person is that I've, I didn't start out with literature. I didn't read when I was young. I mean, I came to it late. But I can, I can remember reading books and then reading critics on them and being so thankful because they helped me see something about a play that I didn't see. So when I went back and saw the play, it was a much richer play. So one of the values of critics is they help us to see things. You know? But Shakespeare had this vast knowledge. He, he, he knew Rome, Greece, the Bible, Jerusalem. You know? It was so much a part of... So he, he brings this wealth of knowledge to what he does. And if you have any sense of the things he knew, you'll be able to see more in his plays than people who didn't. So you're right, it's a hard question to answer, but I, but I think there's a truth in what I say. We can feel the light, and we can walk out of a movie today feeling there was something there. And don't, haven't all of you experienced it where you start talking about it, and then you suddenly get clear on something in the movie? But it wasn't until you talked about it. But the effect of it when you left the movie was real, so that you knew something inside, something was there. And you could begin to understand. Remember, senses, imagination, ratio, working it out, understanding. Ah, I see. That the poet is the one who helps us feel to help make our minds better, what we do with our powers of reason. There's no time for racket, but I want to just say this. Um, when you look at um, Dante, no, when you look at Boethius, Shakespeare, no, sorry, Boethius, Chaucer, sorry, Boethius, Dante, Chaucer, Milton, Shakespeare, you're reading poets. There's a, a dark, dark cast to Milton. You, you've all seen it. But you're reading poets who have this amazing sense that the human person is this extraordinary thing. I think Shakespeare and Dante do that better than anybody. When you, when you get out of the Paradiso and the Divine Comedy, you realize that the human person is this extraordinary thing and that we've lost a sense of how extraordinary we are in the, human, in the modern world. There are so many things degrading our sense of ourselves. Um, our and for a Catholic, for somebody with a belief, we should know that there's a compatibility between our faith and reason. That's far more true than for the Protestant world, for the Islamic world, the Jewish world. That there, those two things. Christ is the Word. He is the source of reason. He is the source of love. To get straight on Him is to help make our minds, what we do with our powers of reason, more healthy. So the work that we've been doing this whole year has been, when I try to put it together, it's been this wonderful affirmation of who the human person is in, in, in the struggles that we have with evil, the disorders of our life, that there are these extraordinary things. And if we take Boethius seriously, we have to remember, nothing's going on that isn't, in some sense, good. God is making something good of it, even if we don't see it. If we're not seeing that, there's something wrong with our faith. And something in our reason should be supporting that. So that all the works that we've been doing have been this extraordinary affirmation of who the human person is. We are, St. Thomas, we are the greatest thing in creation, the noblest thing. And if that, if that wasn't true before, 
It couldn't, it couldn't be missed after Christ because Christ took on our nature. Why would God do that unless there was something extraordinary to be saved in the first place? All he did was make it better. So everything we've been doing has been an affirmation of that. That's the short of it. You guys have a good summer. Listen to me. Before you, before you go, write to me this summer. I want to hear from you guys because I will miss you all. Even you. Marcy. Yeah. Is there a story to this? Well, I I love bookmarks. Oh, okay. Some of you may have had one that I gave out, the yeah. cross one. Yeah. And so I recently found this, and I thought everybody needs it. <laughs> because they're really good. Great. Thank you. By the way, I meant to tell you guys, I was going to open, but I forgot. Um, last Monday night, when, I, I'm sure all of you felt this, I'm guessing all of you felt this. When we left and we were going out the door and almost everybody's gone, Gita was going, I'm sorry, she's not here now. Gita was going out and going, my head hurts. <laughs> I wanted to put that together. I told her when I saw her afterwards. When I first started this thing three years ago, and, and um, Scott Immel, who runs the, you know, he, he's the one who has the catechesis now. He was with us for a year, but then he got involved in this job that he's got here. But he came out of the first class, and when I said something like, any questions or something, he just looked dumbfounded, and he said, I, I came for a glass of water, and I've been given a, a fire rifle. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to put those two things up together. Mark's coming on Jesus. <laughs> So are we going to be meeting the same Monday night? Yeah. 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 Okay. Say hi to Chester. I will. 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 I will